Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's host, as always, is Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today's guest, Dr. Molly Jacobs, is the Director of Curriculum and Instruction for Project Oceanology, a nonprofit education and research facility dedicated to nurturing student and public interest and enthusiasm for marine sciences. She's conducted scientific research in marine environments around the world, from the rocky shores of the Pacific Northwest to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Dr. Jacobs is passionate about science education and science communication and took a year away from research science to work as a marine science policy fellow in the halls of the United States Congress. She now works as an associate professor of biology at McDaniel College in Maryland. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today on our show, we have Dr. Molly Jacobs from Project Oceanology. Welcome to the show, Molly. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I know. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I I always like to start the show having guests take a look back and provide us with a sense of when their passion for protecting the oceans began. So maybe you could kick the show off with telling us a little bit about yours. I'd be happy to. So, you know, um, when I was a college student, so I, I mean, I grew up going to the beach And when I was a college student, I was always really interested in science. So I knew I wanted to be a biology major. And then I kind of almost by chance ended up taking a class in marine biology. And it really just opened up a whole new world for me. I had the opportunity to go to the ocean with my professor. And it just, I started to learn about a lot of the little things that I had overlooked on the shore before. So like all these really beautiful and really mysterious organisms that live in the water column or on the rocks. Um, And that's really what did it for me. I started to think about all these life cycles and what these critters were doing. And it just, I've never gotten tired of thinking about that. That's what really started it. Um, Thinking about like how things reproduce and live in the plankton and then settle down onto the rocks. I just, there's something so beautiful about these organisms and their life cycles uh, that, um, yeah, I've never really been able to get over it. So here I am. Yeah. Well, you're not alone. I mean, the ocean and all of the living creatures in it are very fascinating to many people. And it's such a diverse uh, type of ecosystem as well. And I believe so that passion that you had while you were in college kind of led to the background that led you to what you currently do. Do you want to kind of give our listeners a map of like the path that you took to kind of get you where you are right now? It's been a winding path. Um, So I graduated from college and within a few years, I decided I really want to go to graduate school. And I I went to college on the East Coast, ended up at the University of Washington, in particular at a place called Friday Harbor Laboratories, which is a field station. And I lived there for seven years working on my PhD, just sort of immersed in this amazing world of like big kelp and orcas mm. and little worms and um, sea squirts, little tunicates. That's actually what I studied. Yeah, it was just this time in my life when I was just uh, you know, finding stuff out and immersed in things. But I also became really, really interested in things like policy and how decisions people make affect these things that I love so much. And so after I finished my PhD, I stepped away from research for a little while to be a a congressional fellow. So I was a Sea Grant fellow and I went to the United States Congress for a year um, to work on ocean science policy. And that was just uh, a really amazing 
opportunity to understand a little bit more about how government works and how laws are made and how those political decisions can then affect science and um, ecosystems. Um, but it, it wasn't quite, I didn't necessarily want to stay in that world, but yeah, yeah it was very insightful. Um, I've always had a passion for teaching though. So after my time in DC, I went back into research and then I came to the um, East Coast. I studied lobsters, both in Connecticut and in Massachusetts. And then I landed my first, my faculty job in Maryland. And I, so I taught college students uh, for seven years and I loved being a professor, but I reached a point where I was an associate professor and I was um, sort of, I, I found my job rewarding but I also was getting more and more engaged in some broader issues of sort of communicating science to broader audiences. Um, I was the leader of a, a public affairs committee at my scientific society, uh, working with student journalism journalists to tell stories to the public. And I eventually decided to step away from academia to work more directly with younger students in the public. And that's what led me to Project Oceanology. Project O is really just, it has been a wonderful place to be because it's very dedicated to doing good science, but it also um, at Project Joe, we involve all of our participants who come out on our boats, whether they be public participants or students are involved in doing genuine scientific research. And so for me, it's been a sweet spot of um, working more directly with people in, in this broader education mission, um, but still having my hand in research science and um, collaborating with, you know, colleagues here at UConn and other places. Yeah. And, you know, many uh, researchers and people who have a passion for the work kind of take this winding road like you did. <laughs> and, you know, I've had the opportunity to travel with you on your research vessel and to participate in your program. So that for was... our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Project O and the mission of your organization? Yeah. So Project O was founded in 1972. And really, it started as a collaboration of school districts. There were a lot of local school districts that saw Long Island Sound as this amazing resource, but didn't have a way to get their students out on the water directly doing hands-on work. There just was there weren't any opportunities like that. And so they pooled their resources and led by a really amazing guy named Mickey Weiss, um, who had this vision for this science collaborative that would engage students and members of the public in ocean stewardship and it's sort of generating enthusiasm for Long Island Sound and for the ocean in general. And so they formed this collaborative that became Project O. Um, and we're still governed by a board of school districts. Um, and we're still owned by, so we still exist that way. Um, so we started our mission and we do, uh, we work with schools during the year, but we also have trips that are open to the public to participate in some of our environmental monitoring projects. Uh, we run summer camps, both for students from our member schools, but anyone can sign their their children up for our summer camps. Um, and um, because we are so focused on research, we generate a lot of long-term environmental monitoring data. And so we're involved in collaborating with scientists from UConn and other places um, to help uh, do some environmental monitoring. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the organization has been around since the 1970s and it's heavily involved with citizen science, which I believe is more important today than ever. Yeah. Uh, for those you know who are not familiar with it, citizen science is a form of like simultaneous learning and knowledge making. It bridges the gaps by, you know, tapping into people's innate curiosity or students, you know, curiosity. They have this desire to find out more. And then, you know, by having them involved in these projects, they get to benefit, you know, and they get to explore it and put their energy into it. 
And I feel that citizen science encourages people to take a stake in the world around them. Okay. You know, as an you know, as a result, we hope that either we have a more informed public that'll play a valuable role in influencing those larger decisions about science and policy. So, can we talk a little bit about your citizen science, the participants in your research? And you know, I know you have a long-term data set that you had put into a report. Yeah. So um, we've been we go out on our. So this is the trip you participated in. Um, I believe we go out on our yep. big research vessel and we do a number of things. We we look at the biological organisms that are present at the time we go out. And so we haul a trawl net uh, and see what fish and crabs and things like that that we catch. We haul them in, we count them, we identify them, we measure them. And when I say we, I really mean the participants who are on board our boat are doing these things. So we really believe in passing things off into the hands of students or members of the public whenever possible. And so it might be fifth graders who were aboard our boat that day. And those fifth graders are the ones um, counting, processing, using keys to identify the fish, measuring them on our fish measuring boards, sexing the crabs, figuring out if they're male or female, all that kind of stuff. So we collect that kind of information. We will do a plankton tow and haul a lobster trap. And then we'll bring the boat over to a sheltered location and anchor and measure the physical oceanography. So we'll put instruments overboard and the students will look to see how things like temperature or salinity or oxygen concentrations might vary from the surface to the bottom of the water. And we've been saving, we've been collecting information like that since 1972 and saving it. And for a long time, it lived as a in a filing cabinet as all these sort of tattered, <laughs> muddy data sheets. Um, and then more recently, we had this wonderful UConn grad student who also worked for us as an educator. Um, and Jake uh, took the time to digitize all of those tattered data sheets. He dug through the filing cabinets, found them all, digitized them. Um, and now we're collaborating with UConn to turn it into a database that can be accessed by anyone. Um, and so we'll be able to enter data sort of live into the database as we're collecting. And then teachers and their classes and members of the public are eventually going to be able to log into this database if they want to see, you know, oh, how is pH of the Thames River varied over time? Or, you know, does did Project O ever measure water quality near where I live? Um, and then we're also collaborating with a broader group um, led by Jamie Vaudry at UConn um, to sort of have citizen science organizations across Long Island Sound come together to share information. So it's a really exciting, I, I liked what you said about citizen science. It's a really exciting time to be participating because there's this big effort afoot to get everyone talking to each other and sharing data so that we can get a bigger picture view of what's going on in Long Island Sound. So if you look at our data set, we have one of the best data sets that's um, for this particular area where we are, the Thames River mouth area. Um, and you can really see a lot of the larger climate trends, you know, uh, decreasing pH, increasing temperature, things like that um, in our data set. And it's very consistent with what um, uh, Connecticut state officials or Yukon scientists are measuring with their much more sophisticated instrumentation further out into the sound. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned a couple of really important parts that that access to the, that the public would have. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like access to scientific research has never been more important either to provide that basis for debates on critical issues, you know, like climate change and global health, and to give people a deeper and broader understanding of how science operates, mm -hmm. right? It's a powerful asset against false claims that can so easily be put out there on social 
networks and that people actually consider news when in fact it's not. Yeah. So you had mentioned a couple as a researcher when you look at the data that you've been collecting, you know, as you said, with the help of citizen science, science uh, scientists over this period of time. And really mo mostly kids. I should say that the scientific, the peer-reviewed scientific paper that we published in um, 2019 um, uh, in collaboration with some folks from UConn, all those data were really collected by school kids, almost all of them. Um, which I think is really, really cool. So if you look at the acknowledgement section of that paper, we just have this list of schools. Um, and I think that's really neat to be part of something larger like that. I wholeheartedly agree. And that gives students the you know knowledge that they can actually make changes by even participating in programs like this that collect this valuable data and Again, it, I'm sure that it spurred excitement in many students that have been out on that, you know, been out on the uh, research vessel of yours. Um, so when we look at some of the effects of climate change that you've noticed, because you had mentioned the like decrease in oxygen levels or the rising water temperature, mm -hmm. um, I believe that you've even seen a shift in species composition. So what are some of the indirect effects that we have seen that you've seen uh, f through climate change? over these number of years that the study has been done. Yeah, that's been interesting. And so um, one thing that's, one change that's happened in Long Island Sound that is, I think, pretty famous, a lot of folks around here might've heard about it, is the decline in the lobster population. So when Project O started, lobster were really, really abundant. There was a thriving lobster fishery um, in Long Island Sound and all over Southern New England, really. And in the 1990s, that really just completely crashed. Um, there are still lobsters present, but there's barely any, there, there aren't enough of them to support a large fishery. Um, and we don't collect, we don't catch nearly as many. We almost never catch them trawling anymore. We only catch them in specific locations with lobster pots. Um, lobsters are, of course, they're a benthic scavenger. And so lobsters are these crustaceans. They crawl along the bottom. They eat almost anything. They play this really important role in breaking down dead things and just sort of, sort of scavenging what can be found. One organism that we've seen a big increase for is spider crabs. They're not as tasty as lobsters. They don't really have much meat on them, so they're not as good for people, but we've seen a big increase. And so it's possible that spider crabs may be fulfilling some of that ecological role with the lobsters missing. Um, another interesting thing that may be affecting lobsters is black sea bass. This is a fish that's always been present, that has been present since the beginning at low levels, but we've really seen an increase in black sea bass in Long Island Sound in recent years. We think there's a big population range shift um, coming up from the south. And so if you look at historical fishing records, they used to be really abundant off of places like North Carolina. Right. Um, now those fishing vessels have to travel pretty far north to find them, but they're becoming more abundant. So the whole species is maybe shifting a little bit north, probably as a result of climate change. Now, black sea bass, um, they really like to eat juvenile lobsters. Mm. So the lobsters may be struggling because of temperature. They're cold water um, crustaceans, but they may also be experiencing some of these indirect effects because there may be more predators actually around for them now than there used to be. Because, you know, all these organisms that are out in Long Island Sound, some of them, there may be a temperature effect. As Long Island Sound gets warmer, we might see some species happier, some species struggling more. But there are also all these indirect effects because, of course, it's an ecosystem, right? Everything is right. interacting. So you can't mm -hmm. change, you can never change just one part of it without affecting the other parts. And so right. thinking about it as a food web, as a um, this sort of connected ecosystem, I think is a valuable way to think about it. And we've so we've seen these changes in, 
you know, which are the most abundant fish, which are the most abundant um, invertebrates. Um, what we don't necessarily know because in the context of an ecosystem, these changes have been pretty rapid. You know, if you see big changes over only a few decades, that's a very fast change, you know, in the big picture. Sure. And so we still don't know how things are going to settle out, but we, it does seem like there's a lot of change happening here in Long Island Sound. Yeah. I mean, for sure, there has been, you know, there's a lot of research that has shown that. And I thought it was interesting that you mentioned the connected ecosystems because every, you know, everything that happens has an effect and then that kind of, you know, broadens out. And that even goes to uh, human development and the effects that we can have on students and their knowledge and getting them involved in, you know, organizations such as ours. So, your organization has also done uh, teacher professional development in the past, and you had mentioned with the students collecting a lot of the data, you work with many of the schools with the end goal of community resilience to climate change. So I was hoping maybe you could expand a little bit on you know, that mission and you know, what are some of the opportunities that you have that are available for the local public. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned it. So yes, in recent years, we've really come to focus on this idea of resilience. What resilience means, both for an ecosystem or for a community, is that um, if something happens to impact, if, there, if there's an event, could be a storm, could be an invasive species or a, a change in the climate, how equipped is that system, that ecosystem or that community to absorb the change and bounce back, right? If a big hurricane were to hit our area, what impact would that have on, for example, our coastal salt marshes or our coastal communities? And how quickly could we recover from something like that? And if we are resilient, then we might bounce back fairly quickly. Um, if we're not resilient, not so much. And so we've been working with, in the past year in particular, we've been working, uh, we've been partnering with the city of Norwich, um, which is a city at the, at the top of the Thames River, um, to do a resilience program for students in the seventh grade. And they learn about resilience, both, it, they spend some time learning about the science of the Thames River watershed, which of course is one of the major watersheds and pertaining to Long Island Sound. They spend time with us out on our boat and they spend time thinking about their own community and how their community is or is not resilient to climate change. And so for Nor Norwich is a city that um, they're not right on the coast, so they're not necessarily gonna be hit with big waves if there's a storm, but flooding is a big issue there. There's some important parts of the town that are very low lying. And there have historically been, you know, issues with dangerous flooding. There's also water quality issues with flooding in Norwich. And so um, having students think about sort of community, both the human and the structural side of community resilience has been really fun. And I think empowering for a lot of those students to think about, okay, and then the, the, the project culminates with an action. Um, we've been doing this also with fourth graders way up in Ashford, right? So these kids, we, we spend the whole year learning about this stuff and then it ends with a stewardship action. And that's really, really important because it's like you said, Colleen, when people take action, they take ownership, right? And so they start to, when they take a successful action to be a better environmental steward, then they start to feel like it's theirs. And that's how we're going to create the next generation of environmental stewards, right? right. Is we're going to be um, sort of enabling youth or, or anyone really, um, to take action and take ownership. And so students sort of come up with ideas for what they might do. Um, the Norwich students have been going out and doing water testing at different sites around their community. My fourth graders up in Ashford, 
they wanted to uh, label the storm drains in their school and talk about uh, so that people would understand that the water that goes into the storm drains empties into the local river and then eventually out into Long Island Sound. And so we work with students to identify action. We have another group that's talking about doing a painted rock campaign to help educate their community about the the watershed, you know, so like all these creative things that, um, that people come up with and steps they can take. Uh, and I think that is a really powerful approach um, that kind of goes a little beyond what we traditionally think of as science, although it should be part of science, right? The communication part should always be part of science to think more holistically about how people fit into this ecosystem that we're in and how we can all work together to be um, to be better parts of it. Um, and so that's been really, really fun and exciting. And I think it's a way to connect to students who might tend to think of um, science and ecosystems and watersheds as something like separate from their own lives right. when really they're, they're parts of the watershed. Yeah. So that's something that, um, that's been really great, particularly in this past year Yeah, as people as resilience has kind of taken on a whole new meeting <laughs> this past year as, um, we've thought about what kind of things might impact us as communities. And also as people have been, as outdoor time has become, people have really sort of started to focus on the importance of outdoor time. No, I know without a doubt. And, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, be with you and see your wet labs in the classroom and especially the floating lab. And, you know, I, I, you know, loved being able to be on board. And, you know, I, I myself love it when we take students out and provide them with that type of experience, um, where they can truly discover the wonders of the ocean and the challenges to keeping it cleaned and, and protected. And then, like you said, kind of connecting them to that greater ecosystem. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the wet labs and classrooms that you do have as part of Project O and your, especially your two floating labs, I believe you call them? <laughs> yeah. So so we're located in Groton, Connecticut. Um, uh, we share space on every point with the University of Connecticut, although we're separate. And um, we have these two large research vessels that we call our floating classroom, uh, the EnviroLab 2 and the EnviroLab 3. And those are what I was talking about before. They're equipped with trial nets and all sorts of scientific instrumentation. We can take a whole lot of people out at once. We also have a a fleet of smaller skiffs that we can use for smaller scale trips. Um, And those get particularly heavy use during our summer camps. We'll take small groups of campers around to various shore locations or, or out on the water in those skiffs uh, in the summertime. And then in our building, half of it is dedicated to the research lab. So we have a series of different, uh, we have a, a seawater facility where seawater is pumped in from the sound and flows through the tanks. So we keep organisms there. Um, and then we have research labs where students, uh, both during the school year and in the summer will come in to do their scientific research projects. And then we have you know, office space upstairs. The other half of our building is a hostel, right, an overnight facility. And so in the summer, our residential campers live there. Uh, and during the school year, that means we can host overnight groups from far away. So we have, for example, college groups from all around the Northeast will come and spend, like stay here, use us as a, a base for their field trips. Um, we'll have school groups. Uh, we have a school group that comes from Northern Vermont. They take a trip all the way down the, the, the Connecticut River watershed and end up here in Groton. We also do public trips in the winter. Uh, we have seal watch cruises that leave from our dock. And so anyone can sign up for those. And we do this with school groups as well. Mm-hmm. But we go out um, to monitor the harbor seal population in Fishers Island Sound. And of course, because it's Project O, we collect data. So you get on board, you get a clipboard and a pair of binoculars and a pencil, and we explain what you need to do. 
Um, um, but we do seal, we do population counts at different locations. And we also try to record their behavior, like how many are on the rock versus in the water. Right. We have certain poses on the rock. We look for the banana pose, which is kind of this funny pose where they're lifting their tail on their head. It, it helps them, um, helps with their uh, heat management. And in the summer, we do the trip that I think you got to come up with us on, which is an introduction to oceanography trip. That's where we do the environmental monitoring I was talking about with water quality and um, the trawl. Yeah, that was the trip. And I did enjoy, you know, seeing the public that was on the ship with us as well. You know, like I said, seeing the young students just like fascinated by what comes out of the ocean and all of the living creatures that are in there that they never really think of when they're splashing and playing on the shoreline. But you know, it's teeming with life. You know, the ocean is teeming with life. And uh, I I thought it was funny, though, you had mentioned, um, I mean, boy, how our world has changed. And you and I have spoken about COVID and how it's changed many of the things that we took for granted. But, you know, it's also been a time of reflection and of growth and opportunity. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how your organization has grown and changed from dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, obviously it was, uh, of course, um, we had to adapt quite a bit. Um, when everything shut down in the spring, suddenly most of our schools couldn't come to us. And so we had to um, transition to working with them online and remotely, uh, which we did. And we created all sorts of digital resources for them. But right away we started thinking, you know, schools are shut down. All these kids are indoors on their screens. And really what we felt we felt the most important contribution we could make to our community in the summer was to get some of these kids like outdoors and away from those screens because, um, you know, right. it's understandable. It, there wasn't, there wasn't another option last spring, but, but you know, the, right. that was really hard on kids. It was hard on everybody. And it was particularly hard on kids from underserved communities who just might not have access to outdoor, safe outdoor spaces. And, you know, being outdoors is is Mm -hmm. really important for particularly in a time like this, right? I think everyone has come to appreciate the importance of being able to be outside in these well-ventilated spaces. And a lot of people just haven't had access to that. Um, And so we partnered with the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut to offer um, a healthy camper program. And so we had, uh, we ran summer camps. Um, they were very small group camps with a lot of safety precautions, uh, temperature screenings, health questionnaires, um, et cetera. We were very safe, no, no COVID cases at our camps all summer. We partnered to offer camp scholarships to uh, children of essential workers and children from families that were suffering um, uh, negative economic impacts from COVID. And a, a large proportion of our summer campers this summer came from these populations. Um, and we were particularly focused in um, some of our Alliance school districts. These are children enrolled in school districts that are on sort of a state list of districts that need special support due to uh, being underserved communities or underperformance of those schools. And so we had a, we hosted a lot of students from these families um, at our camps this summer, and it was just awesome. The kids were, um, I mean, they're always excited to be at camp, but this year there was like this giddiness that, you yeah. know, they just like, they had been indoors and isolated for months. And then suddenly they were like outside, you know, and it, they don't care that they were, they were wearing masks. They didn't care. They were like outside with other kids, like right. getting to like do stuff and touch stuff and not having to log into anything. Yeah. And it was just like, they were a little crazier than usual, but that was kind of, okay. you know, we were kind of the same way because we'd also been stuck in sure. this wonderful release <laughs> for all of us. Um, 
so yeah, that was, that's what kept me going this summer. And, um, mm. and you know, I talked to a lot of parents that, uh, there was this one parent I remember she was a, she was a, somebody who had been laid off as a result of COVID. She worked in the airline industry and she would drive her daughter to camp. And this is a day camp, of course. And then she decided that she needed some outdoor time too. And so she would drop her daughter off and then she would go to a nearby outdoor space, like a beach or a hike. Um, and so she mm. sort of ha also had this intense outdoor week. And she talked to us about how important that was for her mental health as well. You know, mm. having this um, sort of peaceful outdoor time to just get away from the craziness and awfulness and the stresses of the year. And so that was our summer. Um, and it was like, it felt yeah. like it sometimes we were just in a bubble with these kids, you know, doing science and giving them a break from these stressful things. And kids talk to us about that too, about how, you know, they tend to open up and, and we tried to provide a forum for that as well. And kids were, you know, you talk to kids about how, like how stressful it was to like, not really know what's yeah. going on in the world and their parents are stressed out and school is weird and hard to wrap your brain around and they can't see their friend, you know, it was, um, yeah. it was really, the summer camp season was a, um, a very bright point for us in a, in a tough year. And we've tried to sort of hold on to that as we've moved back into the school year. And I think I think it's wonderful that, you know, you just, you not only offered them a safe place outdoors, uh, you gave them that connection to nature, which really is healing for all of us, including that mother who yeah. went and on her hikes, you know, like that'll improve your mental health, you know, get yourself outdoors. And you also gave them though, that spa safe space where they could share their feelings and their thoughts and also have this wonderful learning experience. And I think that that is, you know, fantastic. And, you know, there are stories like this that, you know, we've come together and changed many of the things that we used to do to kind of, as you stated earlier, like build our resilience to uh, situations like this that we've all faced. And, you know, another thing that I like, Molly, is, you know, when we work, um, you know, the work we're doing to mitigate climate change. And I had talked to you that I always like to talk about hope for the future in the podcast. And you and I actually found a lot of areas for hope to talk about after our conversation. So if it's okay, maybe we can explore a couple of those. And I think the first is that broader story of uh, water quality in Long Island Sound. Yeah. Because, right, the Long Island Sound was not always known for its water quality. And, you know, it has been, it's definitely improved. And much of that has to do with the Clean Water Act, but that dates back to 1972, which is basically, you know, around when your organization first started. Yeah. And the Clean Water Act, its objective was to restore and maintain that chemical, physical and biological integrity of the nation's water. And I I think you can agree with me and I'll let you talk about this, but the improvements we're seeing now are really kind of like 30 years in the making. Maybe you could talk a little bit about our bigger story of recovery in our region, especially when it comes to the sound. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, um, Long Island Sound is such an important estuary on the East Coast. It's huge. It's one of the, the major ones, but a lot of people live in this watershed, right? We have uh, huge population centers. And so right. um, really Long Island Sound to improve water quality in Long Island Sound, you really have to get good at having people live in harmony with their environment, right? You can't take the people out of the picture. So you're right. So when you look at Long Island Sound water quality over time, over the decades, we do see a fairly dramatic improvement in recent decades. You know, the Long Island Sound study, which is this um, sort of inter-organizational organization, if that makes sense. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> it, um, 
but monitors water quality every year from a lot of different sources. And it gives different regions of Long Island Sound letter grades. And if you look at those letter grades, like over time, we, 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 we see this big improvement, particularly in the Western Sound. Now, I'm in the Eastern Sound, close to the mouth mm-hmm. of the Sound. And mm-hmm. over here in this part of the Sound, we're fortunate because our water, we get a lot of exchange with the Atlantic Ocean and there aren't as many people in this part of the Sound. And so our water quality has always been fairly good. But the closer you get to the New York City part of the Sound, um, the more impacted it was. And the Clean Water, you're right, the Clean Water Act played a huge role because what we realized in the 60s and 70s, I think the realization came that um, the water that runs off of land, like into storm drains or discharges from factories, all those things were really negatively impacting water quality. And so as we have started to do things like separate our sewer systems from our storm drain systems, right? It seems like a no brainer, Mm -hmm. but like a lot of major cities still haven't managed it, but we've made progress on that. As we've started to work with agricultural, upstream agricultural communities or towns and cities on fertilizers and understanding that over fertilization, well, those extra fertilizers just drain right out into the sound and they can produce algal blooms. Mm -hmm. Um, The algae then die and decompose, and then you get, you contribute to dead zones. Here in the Thames River, where I am even, if you look at water quality studies from the 70s or even the 80s, there was a dead zone that stretched from Norwich, like halfway down the river in the summer. And now there's still sometimes is a dead zone, but it's confined just to Norwich Harbor, right? So it's it's gotten much better. And so we're seeing the results of the Clean Water Act, but also the results of a lot of really hard work by lots of municipalities along the sound to try to clean up their own part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of local nonprofits too. So it's been a collective effort. And I think Long Island Sound can be proud of being a success story. Um, now, if you get to the waters right next to New York City, it's still heavily impacted. For example, it still wouldn't be safe to eat oysters right. from those waters, but there are all sorts of people working on it. There's even a really cool project involving oysters called the Billion Oyster Project, where they're putting oysters in those oysters can help clean up water. They're filter feeders. They filter out all sorts of pollutants. And so it involves like kids and community groups putting oysters out into the environment and sort of, you know, um, using oysters to to rebuild the ecosystem and um, improve the water quality. So, yeah, I, I think it's an exciting time to be working in this area just because we feel like we have a lot of positive momentum. And there's been a lot of uh, governmental and local investment in the water, and it's I feel like it's paying off. No, I agree. And it's funny that you had mentioned because uh, in our area, we're seeing more of the oyster and uh, seaweed farms popping up. And yeah, yeah, our last podcast was with Dr. Emma Cross, and she's researching that regenerative uh, ocean farming. Yeah. Um, And we've seen, you know, I I myself am involved in a project we had launched called Project Blue, and my hashtag is Kelp Save the World. (laughs) And as you know, like marine health, we've we've seen a resurgence of uh, eelgrass, which uh, I'll let you talk about. But you know that that provides a number of important ecosystem functions, right? Because you have foraging areas and shelter for young fish. You have food for uh, migratory waterfowl and other species that come into the area. I mean, it traps sediment, it stabilizes the substrate, you know, reduces the force of wave energy. Um, eelgrass beds also reduce coastal erosion. I, all of these pieces that play a part in, you know, the greater picture. I mean, it produces food and oxygen and improves the water quality by filtering polluted runoff, as you were saying, right? The, um, it absorbs those excess nutrients, stores greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. I mean, 
there's so there's so many things that we're seeing if we just pay them attention they will help you know improve the marine health but we kind of have to help them so you said you've seen a resurgence in eelgrass as well right in some of the different areas yeah so um just in our local area where we go with our summer campers it used to be that um you know we'd want our campers to see eelgrass beds but that they used to be like we'd have to take them to these very specific areas and they were hard to they weren't great areas for the campers to access you know they would look at them from skiffs and stuff like that and um yeah, we've seen, uh, there's a little island called Pine Island, right mm. off of Avery Point. And we've just, in recent years, we've just seen huge growth of the eelgrass beds that surround it, um, where there really weren't any eelgrass beds before. And that's been really exciting because eelgrass is one of these indicator species, right? If the water's not healthy, the eelgrass just aren't going to grow. Right. Right. So that they really are a sign of healthy water. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and I also wanted to t- we the other message of hope that you and I were talking about because you know we're looking at new types of sustainable energy, and I know there's an opportunity for wind energy in New London, and they're in the midst of developing that uh, Revolution Wind, which I believe is a 704 megawatt project. Yeah, uh, have you heard any more about that particular project? Or we've been following it with great interest because, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, New London, where I am, is a, a deep water harbor that's pretty close to the mouth. Of, so I think from an economic perspective, this community is hoping to be a base of operations for that industry and that it might lead to some economic opportunities for people here. And yeah, it, it turns out that the coastal shelf off of the mid-Atlantic states in New England does seem to be really well suited for wind energy. And so there's been a lot of energy and interest in the development of that industry, uh, and some concern as well from, for example, from the fishing industry. But yeah, I, I think um, it's exciting to me to see our region sort of have the opportunity to be part of uh, a sustainable energy future in New England. And so, you know, I, I, I support being careful about wind development and making sure that we're not leaving the fishing industry behind. But yeah, in the schools, we've been doing a lot of wind energy projects Um we have students like build turbine, like we have these wind turbines and we have students build blades for turbines and then test out different blades and learn about this, like the science of energy generation and also some um, physics as they're testing those turbines. And that's been really fun to do too. And then we all will take them out on our boat and we'll use their turbines that they've made and other instruments to try and figure out, okay, if you were going to put a wind farm, where would be the best spot? You know, like where would the cable go? Would there be any animals impacted? having students problem solve in that way sort of helps them really grapple with not just environmental questions, but um, sort of community questions. Like where would you put it to provide energy to the most people? What about the view? Do we care about that? You know, rich people sometimes mm-hmm. don't want to see the the turbines. Um, right. All, all sorts of interesting questions that are raised by these wind power projects that are really perfect for kids to grapple with because they're, they're, they're complicated, right? They're multifaceted. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're real, like it's actually happening now <laughs> and these are really being built. And so really like students see the connection, you know, they may have um, parents in some kind of, you know, associated industry that might be affected by this wind revolution if it happens um, as it's happening, I should say, because it seems like it is happening. Yeah, no, it's de- definitely happening. Um, and as you said, it's something for the students to think about because they are right in the middle of it. It is happening right now. Yeah. And speaking of the students, you know, lastly, let's end with the biggest message of hope in all of this. And yeah. I believe that it's the students that you get to work with. 
I don't see how you could work with um, sort of this generation of young people and not be hopeful for the future because that, I think that's what keeps a lot of us going. And it really, I think when I think about like the high school, the middle school, the elementary school kids that I have the the pleasure of working with from all these different communities um, in this area, it just, um, you know, the sooner this generation can be in charge, the sooner we'll save the world. It really like these, they care. They're already good stewards. They're, I think they're already just sort of kinder and more conscientious human beings, maybe than than my generation ever was. Mm-hmm. I just, it gives me so much hope and energy and excitement to work with um, young people in this area. Yeah, I think it's hard to be a pessimist when you work with kids around here. Yeah, I agree with you. With having the students that I've worked with, the future definitely does seem much brighter. So thank you for that message, Dr. Molly Jacobs. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Everyone listening, please keep in mind that while we have a lot to do, there is still hope for us as we work towards protecting our oceans. It's listeners like you, our ocean stewards, and our citizen scientists. You are the ones helping us make a difference. If you would like to donate or if there's a topic you would like for us to touch upon or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. Thank you for joining us today, and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. We hope you liked today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, you can follow us at futurefrogmen.org or on all social media at Future Frogmen. We do shows weekly, so until next Monday, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.